Welcome to Full Life FM. I'm your host, Emily Tim. I'm a registered dietitian, content creator, and feminist on a mission to help women live their fullest lives. I've worked with thousands of women with PCOS and other endocrine conditions to optimize metabolic, reproductive, and mental health. I'm passionate about approachable, evidence-based nutrition, intentional living, and the Mediterranean diet and lifestyle. Each week, we'll bring you new episodes and guest interviews to inspire, empower, and educate on what it really means to be healthy. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review. And if you're ready to do health together, I'd love to have you in my membership community, the Full Life Society. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get started. Good morning, ladies. I am here today with a very special guest. I'm here with Dr. Sandra Sobel. Dr. Sobel and I have known each other for a couple of years. We worked together briefly um, at UPMC, which is a major medical institution in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we worked together in the Department of Endocrinology. So I thought she would be an incredible guest to have on because she has such a comprehensive view of, of health management and also is an endocrinologist. So we can get some amazing, you know, evidence-based insights and, and, um, have an amazing conversation with her. So, uh, Dr. Sobel, do you want to just kind of introduce yourself a little bit? And, um, and if anybody saw, we did a live yesterday on Instagram, so you can also watch the live, but, but we're going to have more of an intimate conversation here. So if you want to just introduce yourself and just share a little bit about your, your practice and, and who you are just for that context, that would be awesome. Great. Thanks, Emily. And thanks so much for having me this morning. And, you know, make, I might get used to this, Emily, seeing you every day. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yesterday was really fun. Um, so I am um, a, me- I'm a medical doctor. And I am a board certified endocrinologist. I also have board certifications in lifestyle medicine, as well as obesity medicine. And um, my focus within the field of endocrinology is metabolic health. And um, that's always been my passion. And so I, I having these these, the expertise in those three different domains really merges when it comes to, okay, understanding the science and the medical therapies that are needed, but also just the really important, um, lifestyle components that go into metabolic health. Um, and you know, one of the things that I felt really passionate about was teaching myself more about nutrition. And so I pursued also some nutrition certifications during the pandemic when you're trying to, you know, further your knowledge to really help people that you, that you feel passionate about. Um, And so it was also during that time, you know, when I realized, listen, the traditional medical model um, is, is what it is. um, And it has benefits, but it also has limitations. And one of those limitations was access that people have to their medical team. Um, often really, really long wait times. And then when you are able to get in with your medical team, um, it's a really short visit and it can feel really rushed, really impersonal. And then at the end, you're like, well, I was just told what to do without really being able to engage in my care. And for me, that's not why I went into medicine. And so um, recognizing the complexities of metabolic health 
and all the different variables that play into it, um, I said, I want to be able to provide an opportunity, an option for individuals who really want somebody who can provide a comprehensive expert approach to their metabolic health and where they know that they're speaking with the same consistent member of their team when it comes to questions about their nutrition, their exercise, their stress management, as well as their labs and the medicines that they may need to take. Um, and so it's been, I've been doing this now for a year. My, my um, direct care practice is here in Pittsburgh. It's called Summon Health. And it's been absolutely thrilling. So um, I, I'm, I'm loving just the, the ability to really dive in deep down into people's health history and also provide clarity and really engage in this like team approach. So yeah, that's me, Emily. <laughs> so good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really incredible. I just, I've heard you talk about your practice now, like a few times in the past few days, but it's, I get excited every time I hear you talk about it because it's just exciting for women's health and also just for the field of metabolic health and endocrinology in general to see more practitioners creating their own models when, when the model isn't created for us. And that's something I talk to you guys about all the time is like designing your own environments and making it happen. So I love that that's a part of who you are. And I thought it would be cool today, Sandra and I were chatting before this, I thought it would be cool today to talk a little bit more in depth about weight management in the context of, of PCOS and metabolic health, because I know from conversations with so many of you that there isn't a lot of exposure to what that can look like as far as medical weight loss and, and combining different therapies together. So I think we can kind of start there. And um, so if somebody were, I'm thinking of like a client in my head right now who I recently talked to about seeing an endocrinologist for medical weight loss. If somebody were like brand new and they had never heard of this idea of, of seeing a doctor to help with weight loss in an evidence-based way, like how, how would you kind of like explain that? Or how does somebody know that that's the thing they need to do? You know, what are the options? That would be awesome. Absolutely. So great question. And one of the things that I, I'll, I'll start by answering that there is a lot of just misconceptions about um, weight, excess weight. And the biggest one is that it's the person's fault, right? That, oh, it's all because of too many calories in and not enough calories out. Um, and if it were just that simple equation of cutting calories and burning more than you eat, then uh, we wouldn't have um, a field such as obesity medicine, right? So if it were that simple, there wouldn't be obesity medicine providers, there wouldn't be um, a lot of research going into the causes, into medical therapies, as well as behavioral therapies that can help with it. So I really wanna impress upon individuals that obesity is a medical condition, okay? And so it has so many variables that manifest in the presentation. And so calories and energy expenditure are part of the equation, but they're not the whole equation. And so certainly for individuals who have found that, you know, despite their efforts of trying to be more mindful of 
the, what, what it is that they're eating. They've tried cutting calories. They have increased energy expenditure. Um, however, it's not leading to the healthy weight loss that they're looking for. And they also, um, they may have a family history that also um, has excess weight too. It's important for individuals to know that there are also very real hormonal aspects that can be impacting um, their ability to lose weight. And it is important to seek out a medical professional with expertise who understands the complex physiology that goes into uh, weight so that they can get a proper evaluation as well as a proper interpretation of what those results mean and proper therapy that encompasses um, nutrition, the exercise, the stress, the sleep, as well as medical therapies. I think one of the things, unfortunately, um, in our culture, at least, is if a medicine is needed, then um, it's looked upon as a cop-out or someone's doing it the easy way. And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? If somebody has hypothyroidism and their thyroid just doesn't make enough thyroid hormone, we need to replace it, right? With thyroid hormone. And the same goes in obesity medicine. There are abnormal hormonal signals, right? And we can get into those later if you want, but that can get a little deep into science, but you know, abnormal hormonal signals either with hormonal resistance, like leptin resistance, um, ghrelin starts going up and we need to use medications to counteract that physiology that's preventing the weight loss. And so it's not a cop-out, it's just part of physiology that we need to address as well. And I don't like just throwing medicines at people by any means. And the truth is too, we can't just say, take this medicine, good luck, without addressing the lifestyle components too that impact because both of them need to work in unison in order for there to be maximum effect. So, um, so definitely like with, with obesity medicine, if someone has put in effort and sees that there is um, not the results anticipated that their labs or their blood pressure or their cholesterol, um, you know, their ability to move hasn't been improved upon, it really is important to seek out that expertise. Yeah, that was an incredible summary. And I like that you said at the end um, about kind of the metabolic parameters and then about, you know, movement and feeling good in your body, because I think a lot of the time too, when it comes to weight loss, people assume that the goal is getting down to a a normal BMI, right? Oh oh my gosh. And, and, and you know what, that's, that's a, I get it. I understand it. Right. Because again, if you go into culturally, um, there is this idea of ideal body weight. And the first thing I say, I'm like, please don't put in that calculation. My goodness, that number that comes out is so unrealistic and has, they don't know you, right? They don't know you. They don't know because also the way where that fat is distributed makes a big impact, right? Um, which is why body composition is important. And so, you know, I, I tell my patients who come in, yes, the number on the scale, I, it's important. We follow it, but it's not everything. And I will not give you a goal weight. They'll ask me, well, what's my goal weight? What's my weight need to be to get to a normal BMI? And I say, wait a second, 
what else is going on? Let's see, there might be some prediabetes. There might be some high cholesterol. And I see that your visceral adipose tissue measurement from the body composition machine is higher than what's ideal for you. Mm -hmm. As soon as we're able to reverse the prediabetes, get cholesterol in the normal levels and your visceral adipose tissue improves, guess what? And you're feeling better, congratulations. That's the success, that's where you need to be. And it doesn't matter to me what that BMI number is because right. now metabolically we see improvement in health. Your health has improved. Yeah. I think that's incredible. It's, it makes, it makes weight loss feel so much, so much nicer when we're not trying to just strive for like an arbitrary number. And, um, like I, I mean, I'm sure you do, do you talk a lot about the kind of like losing five or 10% body weight as a goal or do you absolutely, I mean, all the studies, right? Like, so, so, you know, I do think that numbers are helpful Mm -hmm. and, and also when, when we're talking about the five to 10%, I think what, what's helpful about that too, because you can do that calculation in the office is that people are fascinated that it's not some unachievable goal. Right. Right. Sometimes I think we get this idea that it has to be going back to a normal BMI, right? When in fact, if we're able to assist um, individuals in losing that five to 10%, and that's all evidence-based, right? This is coming from large randomized controlled trials um, that have shown that that amount of um, body weight loss translates into significant improvement in metabolic health, then that's a number that people realize like, oh yeah, I I can do that. Right. And so what better way than to start, um, this like mission of weight loss than by being like empowered by a number and not defeated by a number. Yeah. I love that. Um, and when you were talking about visceral adipose tissue, Yes. How, how, how would you explain that to somebody? Cause I think that, um, like sometimes for example, people will see the inches off of their waist going down before they actually yes. see change on the scale. So can you yes. kind of speak to that and what it means? Absolutely. So, um, so visceral adipose tissue is a really important measure and what it is, it's not so much the, um, adipose tissue that's underneath the skin around your waist above the muscle layer that you can pinch. That's subcutaneous um, adipose tissue. Visceral adipose tissue is actually the adipose or the fat tissue that's underneath the abdominal muscle area. So this is the visceral adipose, it's the adipose tissue that surrounds the organs, surrounds the liver, surrounds the pancreas and the adrenal glands. And so we do need a certain amount of adipose tissue in that region to protect the organs. Mm-hmm. However, when that protective amount, the, the mass of the adipose tissue is exceeded past what is considered protective, then that can infiltrate the organs. And when you get infiltration of fat into the organs, that can then lead to internal, like increased cellular inflammation, which then has downstream effects of increasing insulin resistance. Increased insulin resistance is also associated with fatty liver disease. Um, It also affects the ability of the beta cells in the pancreas or the insulin producing cells to make enough insulin or enough good quality insulin. 
Um, and visceral adipose tissue has also been shown to be significantly associated with increased cardiovascular disease risk. And we all know that unfortunately, cardiovascular disease is still the number one cause of mortality here in the United States. So that visceral adipose tissue number has profound value in really understanding a person's metabolic health. Yeah, that's cool. And what, what kind of machine do you use to evaluate that? I'm just curious. Yes. So I use a bioimpedance analysis machine. Okay. So the way bioimpedance analysis works for those individuals who aren't um, as familiar. So the machine that I have in my, in my office, um, you stand on the scale barefoot and it takes a height and a weight measurement. And then um, you grab sensors on some handles. And so you have four points of contact, your feet and your hands. And um, it sends tiny electrical impulses through your body. You don't feel them. And it takes about 10 minutes, it's not 10 minutes, 10 seconds to calculate. Wow. And the um, speed with which these electrical impulses travel through muscle versus fat is different. And so then it's able to calculate your percent body fat mass. It's able to calculate your muscle mass. And then when you combine it with a waist circumference measurement, mm -hmm. then it's able to also provide that visceral adipose tissue measurement as well. Now, just as an aside, people who have any type of heart um, implanted heart monitors, they shouldn't get on this type of a scale because of the electrical impulses. Um, but for several individuals, it's safe to do so. And, um, cool. and it provides a wealth of information. Yeah. I just, I, lo I love that. Cause I think, um, you know, having more, having more data, having more data about metabolic health and not just making it about, a, about the number yes. is, is massive. And so like for women with PCOS, mm -hmm. who a lot of the time, unfortunately do not see providers like you. A lot of the time it's kind of like a, a little, I mean, we hear this, I hear stories all the time. Maybe uh, you do too, uh, of, yes. you know, a little bit of a dismissal of like, okay, this is what you have, lose weight. And, and that's kind of it. So mm -hmm. like if a woman with PCOS is in your office and she wants to lose weight, um, what are kind of like the first things that you, that you guys are talking about, or do, are there medications that you immediately will begin talking about or does it depend on the person? Yeah, great question. So if, if somebody's in my office and they have PCOS and they wanna lose weight, um, I wanna understand like, so why, right? Like what's, what's driving that? And, you know, certainly we know that with excess, um, with excess weight, there can be, with chronic excess weight, there can be certain implications when it comes to joints, um, when it comes to ability to move, um, blood pressure. And so is that driving it? Or is there a desire for pregnancy in the near future, right? And is that what's driving it? What have they tried in the past, right? What have you tried? Because everybody has tried something, especially when they, get, when they get to me, they've already tried many things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I need to have an understanding, like, what have you tried? What's worked in the past? What hasn't worked in the past? Um, and are you open to medications, right? And I explain, you know, again, I don't want to be that person that just pushes medicine and says, you know, see you six months. But I think it's also my responsibility as a physician, as an expert in metabolic disease to explain obesity is a medical condition. And just like other medical conditions that need to have a strong lifestyle component addressed, 
there also comes a time where medications are needed as well. And here are the medications and here's how they work and here's how we monitor and here's how, what the side effects are and here are the expectations of these medications. And so again, I think impressing, coming back to like what I mentioned in the beginning, impressing upon individuals like, um, yes, like let's do this from a lifestyle perspective. I think that's the most important part of this. Medications are needed too. And that's not a cop-out. That's part of the medical therapy. That's awesome. I feel like my brain's going in a million directions right now, but one thing that, um, is coming up for me that you said is like, when you are asking about what people have tried in the past, mm-hmm. um, cause that's one of my favorite questions to ask too, because I think a lot of the time there's kind of a misconception that nutrition is like just kind of very linear, but there is also this, this art to it. And, and so like when you're asking people about what they've tried in the past, does that help kind of dictate what direction you might go with, with lifestyle management and the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, for example, there are so many different nutrition patterns that exist to choose from. Right. And so it's interesting to me to understand if they've tried any of those. And so you'll hear individuals who have tried very low calorie diets, right. Um, and then had success with it, but then their hair was falling out and they felt awful and it was unsustainable, not surprising, right? Because that's very difficult to do for the rest of your life. Uh, Or they tried um, a very low carb diet and um, didn't lose the weight that they expected to lose, right? And also felt awful or, you know, whatever it is. So having that context and understanding, did it work? And if it did work, why why did they stop? You know, and so exploring that because when it comes to the nutrition advice that I like to initiate these conversations with, with um, patients, I like to bring the conversation to the importance of fiber and, you know, saying like, listen, what are you, like, understand what it is that they're getting daily and um, maybe dispel any myths that they or fears that they have about fruit potentially being bad for them or, you know, beans being like, bad because it's a carbohydrate. So really bringing the conversation toward like the quality of food. Um, when it comes to exercise, right? Like, oh, I, I started going on a walk, um, you know, several years ago and I was walking five miles a day and, and that was really helpful. I felt really good. And now I'm doing that and it's just not working. Right. And so, so saying like, okay, well, you know, what's, what's the time, what's the intensity? Do you do anything else besides walking? And so I bring up this concept of inefficiency in exercise and the importance of inefficiency in exercise, meaning our bodies are like the human body is fascinating because it can really adapt to things. If we do the same thing over and over and over and over again, the body's like, I got you, girl. Like, I know what you're about to do. Yes. I don't need to burn as many calories because I know we're about to go on a five mile walk. Right. And so that's why people will might see the plateau and they're like, well, what's going on? You know, I'm not, I didn't change anything. And precisely you didn't change anything. Right. So, so that's why we're seeing this. So this inefficiency, you're like, well, if you go for a walk one day and then you ride your bike the next day, and then you lift weights the following day, and then, you know, you do your pull up. Now your body's like, what is going on? Like, come yes. on, I can't predict what you're going to do. And so, if you're recruiting these new muscles each time, 
you're having to expend more energy. And then in the recovery, you also need to expend energy. And so that's the point. That's what inefficiency is. You're not doing the same thing over and over again. So going that, on. That is such a cool thing that you just brought up because this is also a common question. Um, especially, I don't know how much you observe online about, you know, with, with like the PCOS content that is out there, but there's a lot of conversation about this is the best workout for PCOS, or this is the thing you have to do and you shouldn't do hit and you should. Oh, Oh my goodness. I can tell you even my own patients who come in and they're like, I heard I shouldn't do hits and I I shouldn't lift weights because it raises my cortisol. Right. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, why are people saying this? And so I'm like, you know what else raises cortisol to those people who are are sending this message, waking up in the morning, right? (laughs) And we're not telling anybody to not wake up in the morning, like going on a roller coaster ride raises cortisol, right? Like this is, yes, that's part of normal physiology. Yes. Cortisol levels do go up. Why? Because your liver needs to give your muscles the glucose they need during the exercise to use it to get stronger. But guess what? It's not like you're raising your cortisol levels for 24 hours. No, that's not how hits or weight resistance training works. The downstream effects later on in the day, you get improvement in systemic vascular resistance. You get better glucose control. You get improved insulin sensitivity. So this does cortisol level go up during the exercise? Yeah. It's yeah. supposed to, that's what we need to have happen. But later on in the day, boy, all these benefits that result from it. Uh, this is, this is so, this is so massive and it's, and it's exciting to talk about, um, this, it, like it, when I'm speaking with clients, one thing that I'll say is I'll be, I'll tell people, or I'll suggest every quarter to check in with what you're doing with exercise and mix it up every single quarter yes. or, or more frequently. Cause I think people want to find the best thing and just stick with it. And it's like, well, we have to be changing and evolving. That's, that's the secret to basically everything in life, but but definitely here. I'd also love to ask you, this is another, I feel like now there's just so many amazing PCOS myths that I'd love to hear you speak (laughs) because you do like, you just explain things so clearly this cortisol thing, people get very hyper-focused on this and think that this is a major piece that they need to control related to PCOS. Is there any validity to thinking in this way? Like as far as stress management is concerned or. I think in general for metabolic health in general, and certainly PCOS um, falls under that. Yes. Stress management is absolutely important, right? Like our stress hormones are cortisol and adrenaline. Do we need to check them? No. I mean, if you're stressed, right. And the, if you check your level in the morning, maybe it's slightly elevated, maybe it's normal now. So let me just side sidestep that a little bit. If you're also having other symptoms of chronic high cortisol secretion, like easy bruising, like wide stretch marks that are really dark in color, um, you're having an accumulation of fat tissue behind your neck, or you're, you have like really reddish, you know, coloring to your face then that's an, an actually an endocrine medical condition that needs to be screened for that's called Cushing syndrome, right? And so you need to seek out an endocrinologist to have an appropriate screen for that. And, and the reason why I say an endocrinologist too is because there are nuances for screening for that. Uh, I know a lot of women who have PCOS are on birth control pills 
And so the standard test where you do um, take a steroid at night and check your cortisol in the morning will be inaccurate because the birth wow. control pill, because the birth control pill will falsely raise your cortisol level. And then that causes a lot of unnecessary anxiety that you might have um, Cushing syndrome. When in fact, if you're on birth control, you need to have the other tests that are checking free cortisol. Um, that can be another podcast episode. Wow. At any rate, I just wanted to throw that in there. So, but when it comes to stress, like if we're talking about stress management, having healthy coping techniques is absolutely important because the cortisol secretion that results from chronic high stress, you just heard me say cortisol leads to the release of glucose from the liver. That's part of what it does, right? Um, it also increases insulin resistance at the level of the muscle and the liver, right? And so if you can help your metabolic health by finding healthy coping techniques, that will help lower endogenous, your own cortisol secretion. And so the one that I really like to introduce or discuss with my patients is the power of meditation. And there's a lot of evidence-based studies that show how impactful that can be for health, how that helps with heart rate variability, how that helps with galvanic skin response, how that helps with blood pressure. Right. And, and so Um, There are pharmacologic means, sure, but again, in the spirit of trying to minimize how many medicines we take and learn some healthy coping techniques, meditation is there and um, having the ability to have this conversation with your medical team. I think a lot of people, what I found a lot of people are like, thank goodness you brought it up. I've been wondering about it and I'm so curious. And so let's do it. Let me introduce it. And I have a meditation room in my, in my office and like, let's sit down let's try it together. Right. And, 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 and explore and let me answer the questions or the curiosities you have about it. So, um, there are several other like healthy coping techniques. And sometimes what we, you know, as human beings, sometimes we turn to unhealthy coping techniques and we need to really be cognizant of that too, whether it's like, you know, a glass or of two or three of wine a night. And I love wine, but there's also, that's not a coping technique, right? Like we need to be also honest with ourselves when we're feeling wound up. Am I, am I, am I serving myself in the best way in helping alleviate these stressors that are impacting my health? Yeah, that's, that's so incredible. Yeah. It's like, cause I think what actually happens is a lot of the time people end up stressing themselves out trying to find the exact exercises that aren't going to raise the cortisol. And it's like, well, actually do whatever exercise you want. That's all good. And then, you know, bring this other aspect into, into life. It's like, it's like that intentionality piece that kind of ripples through every single aspect of, of what you do and, and what we do. Absolutely. Um, And how did you, how did you decide to make meditation like a piece of how you approach care? Yeah. Um, So it it was very much um, a a coming to moment where I was practicing, you know, in the traditional medical model. And I was at the computer, Emily, I was just typing and nothing, like nothing significant happened, right? I was just reading a message that somebody had sent me through the portal, great. And then this overwhelming sense of doom just came up like this really like heavy pressure. I was like, something bad is going to happen. What's going on? And I, and I was sharing my office with my colleague and I just sort of 
was like looking at her, like what's going, and then all of a sudden it clicked. I'm like, this is a panic attack. Um, I'm like, wow. And you know, I, I was like, I thought I could handle, you know, stressors very well. And, and the truth is I would internalize a lot of things. And so I was like, oh, this isn't good. I clearly have a lot of anxieties that I'm, that I'm internalizing. And here I am in the middle of a work day, having this response, this isn't healthy and this isn't good. And so at that point too, I was also doing my lifestyle medicine certification and Medita- meditation is part of one of the healthy coping techniques that they talk about when it comes to, you know, stress management. And so I'm like, you know what, if I'm learning about this, I might as well practice it too, so that I can also share my experiences with my patients. And that's how I was introduced to it wow. and have since really followed it. And, and really there's like nutrition, there are a lot of different nutrition techniques and in um, meditation, there are a lot of different meditation techniques. And so the one that I've really taken to is transcendental meditation and, and find that to have been a great alleviator, a great resource, a great tool to use for this um, coping. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I think that probably brings a lot of peace to a lot of people because, you know, here you are and, you know, you have an incredible life and you're incredibly smart and you know you have all of these things but it doesn't matter who you are like this this type of stress can sneak into can sneak into our lives and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us so it's kind of just looking at the environments and looking at what we what we have the power to control and i think for so many people too then even the word meditation can feel a little like just a little intimidating <laughs> But, but you're right. There's so many different forms. Um, and actually meditation can just be something that, that you're moving through your day with just like a little bit more of of an intentionality. Exactly. Emily. Exactly. That's, that's amazing. I wanted to ask you too, this was a question that came to mind. This is probably, I feel like in my brain, there's like these 10 questions that I get asked like at least once a week. And this one is, is, um, about PCOS types. Okay. So like kind of this idea that there are, you know, have you heard of, you know, the, the insulin resistant and the inflammation and the adrenal, and I don't remember the fourth one, this is kind of more of a functional medicine thing, but mm-hmm. does this come into practice for you? Is there validity to this? You right. Know? So, so, um, in our medical community, right in the endocrine society and, you know, so forth, or, or even um, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, um, we don't talk about PCOS types. So that's not like a conversation that we have. Um, the conversation I have with patients though, is hyperandrogenism. So excess male hormone secretion or androgen, right? Secretion, and I explain to everybody, both, both you know, individuals, born male, female, we have both male hormones and female hormones. It's just the ratios, right. That alter. And even when the male hormone level is just slightly increased, that can have, um, precipitate a lot of symptoms. Um, and so then what it comes down to is, you know, with PCOS polycystic ovarian syndrome, one of the things is that a lot of us in endocrinology are just sort of like, um, underwhelmed by that, like categorization, right? Because with PCOS, some people with PCOS, 
don't have cysts on their ovaries. So why are we willing, you know, but they have the metabolic disease. They have the hyperandrogenism. They have, you know, the, just everything else, check, 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 but not what it says, polycysts. Um, sometimes the hyperandrogenism doesn't come from the ovaries. Sometimes it does come from a predominant adrenal source like the DHEAS, right? And so those are the conversations I'm having is like, listen, um, the hyperandrogenism can come from either the adrenal gland or the ovaries, and that can impact fertility, that can impact menses or your period, that can lead to unwanted excessive hair growth, that can lead to acne. And so, um, but like the, the categorization of the types that I'm also not very familiar about, but I've, I've definitely heard, that's not something that's being discussed in the um, medical field. Thank you for saying that. I just wanted to hear you say it, if I'm being honest, because I think people need to hear this over and over again. I think it's so confusing for people because they'll see, okay, if your PCOS type is this, you must do this. And the mm -hmm. thing is, is, um, I mean, you, you, I'd love to hear your answer on this too. As far as the lifestyle management with PCOS is concerned, at least from my perspective, it doesn't, there's not a whole lot of difference, right? Between whether you have a thyroid disease or whether you are overweight or, you know, the kind of the lifestyle management is, is similar, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, sometimes as humans, we just, we want to create a problem so that we can fix it. Right. Yes, so yes. let's, let's not overcomplicate things. And at the root, there's excess, you know, androgen secretion. Um, and some individuals will really manifest this insulin resistance component to it. Um, some individuals manifest other symptoms along with it. And so, you know, figuring out like what is really affecting the person and personalizing the therapy. But in, in the end, um, it's really about like the proper nutrition, the movement that's needed, addressing the stress management, and then tailoring the medical therapy appropriately. Yeah, that's, it's a simpler, it's a simpler, it's a simpler scenario without all this noise. Um, and it is so funny, like the way that you said that you're like, cause I, people ask me all the time and I'm like, I don't even know really what this is or why it exists. Um, <laughs> but here we are. And yeah. along, along those same lines, what are your thoughts on a lot of the home hormone testing that we see now? Like, what do people need to know about that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My here's, here's the thing. Um, so let me just be clear. These home hormone tests, many of them do not have the same validity and accuracy as the tests that have been used for years when an individual goes to the lab to have their blood drawn. Okay. And so what I, or the reproducibility, and that's really important. So what I mean by that is if you were to take this home hormone test and do the sample today, and then do the sample in two days from now, you could get vastly different results. And now you're super confused. In addition, right. When, when individuals go to the lab to collect, have samples collected, whether it's blood, whether it's saliva, whether it's urine at the lab for, you know, these valid tests, they have to be handled in a very specific manner to make sure that when they're processed, right, you're getting accurate results. So that the temperature, right, that they're in this right medium, 
that if you're leaving a urine test, the person who's processing the test has actually shaken it and taken a complete sample rather than pipetting off the top. So it's, it's, it's involved and it's complicated. So to think that we can replace that degree of sophistication with these mail-in tests that only act, ask for like a drop of blood or a saliva sample. And we have no idea, you know, how it's getting from your home back to wherever they're processing it. And there could be, you know, delays in it getting there. There could be, um, it's not in a temperature controlled environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just, I wanna caution individuals because, and also some of the things that they test for, I don't know what those things are. I don't know how to interpret them. And why do these companies make these tests and don't offer solutions for them? Or maybe they do. And the solutions are like, buy these supplements for us because we're going to make money off of these supplements. Right. And so I just want to caution individuals. And so also along with that, I, I want to acknowledge that there is, I think the reason why those things have come are because people are looking for answers. Yeah. And they're looking for answers because they don't have the time to discuss with their medical team what's been going on. Yes. Back to what you were saying, when there's no time and you feel dismissed, then you feel like it's on you to find the answer. So I understand how they came to be. I'm sad that that's how our reality has come because the medical team, a lot of times doesn't have the time. But now I think there's also a shift in medical professionals, you, Emily, like me, who are like, you know what, we can do better. We can spend that time and offer expertise and offer clarity without muddling up, you know, the picture. And so, so I just, I want to say those things can offer more confusion, can actually lead to increased costs for the individual. Um, And really just seeking out a medical professional who offers a space where you can have that time and offers evidence-based answers um, for you that are safe and, and tried and true um, will will offer like definitely more clarity into improving your health. Yeah. I like that you brought that up though, because I agree. I mean, I don't think we should shame anyone for using those tests because. I have empathy for somebody who seeks out that type of thing, because like you said, people are looking for answers. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's also like, it kind of makes my blood boil at the same time because it's like, they're just taking money from people and are supplements a part of your practice at all. Great question. So, I mean, (laughs) you lived in Pittsburgh for a little bit of time. So here in Pittsburgh, unfortunately, we are like one of the top three cities where we don't get a lot of sunlight <laughs> throughout the year. Right. So I use vitamin D supplements a lot. I do tested uh-huh. and, I, and I use vitamin D supplements for women um, who have really heavy periods, even if they're not frequent, but they're very heavy and they lose a lot of blood um, or any menstruating woman, um, they're at risk of being iron deficient, right? And so if there's iron deficiency, I will use iron supplements. Um, now some of these other ones are interesting. And so there are the inositols come up a lot and I'm sure you get a lot of questions about that. I'd be curious to hear like what your thoughts are on that as well as berberine. So berberine is another supplement that comes up a lot in, in discussions with patients. And so 
Um, so metformin is an insulin sensitizer. It, well, it's number one thing that it does is it prevents the liver from making glucose or sugar, um, but it also offers um, improvements in insulin sensitization. And it's been studied, and especially in the PCOS community. And so it is something that we will use as a tool. I don't think every single woman with PCOS needs to be on metformin. Again, this is like tailoring the therapy and seeing what's appropriate and what's not. Um, some people can't, they just can't tolerate it because of some of the side effects associated with it. There are some studies, they're not large randomized controlled trials, but there are some studies showing that berberine may help with insulin sensitivity. And so in some individuals might explore that, right? But I also am very honest about just the science behind it and, and um, you know, how it compares to the droves of information that we have for metformin, for example. Right. What, what are your thoughts, um, like with using an inositol, like with metformin, there's some research showing that there's a long-term kind of like cardiovascular benefit. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's, especially with some of the newer research that, that is the needle is definitely pointing in that direction. Um, you know, some of the earlier studies showed that it was, there was no benefit, that it was a wash, it wasn't harmful, but th there's definitely now um, more studies that are showing that there is likely a cardiovascular benefit. And so um, that's, that's another reason why, you know, we have this discussions, these discussions with individuals, especially because yeah. PCOS can be associated with increased cardiovascular risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the time, like, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a nice amount of evidence related to uh, myo-inositol, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I mean, we live in a country where the supplement industry is yeah. not regulated. So that's mm -hmm. something that I, that I just remind people of, whereas with metformin, you know, at least it is, it's regulated. We have more evidence. We have potentially this cardiovascular benefit. So mm -hmm. um, that's nice to hear though, that, because I think that probably gives a lot of relief to people. Um, mm -hmm. I have had some clients come into my world who are taking like literally, you know, I'm sure you see this too, 12, 16 insane amounts of, of dietary supplements. And we have no idea what those are doing <laughs> in, in their body. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. And so let's see, we have a few minutes left. Um, one question that I had for you, this is another one that many people are fascinated by right now. What are your thoughts, um, around, intermittent fasting. Do you think that this is something worth trying? Great question. Um, and I think this is another, I think this is another, um, example of tools in a toolbox and personalization. Um, so, you know, there isn't, I don't have a blanket answer. Like everybody, nobody should do intermittent fasting. And I don't have an answer that everybody should do intermittent fasting. Cause that's just not true. Right. Um, there was a recent study that, so if we're looking at intermittent fasting specifically for weight loss, um, there was a study that showed that that compared just calorie reduction versus intermittent fasting. Okay. And compared the two over time for weight loss. And, um, those individuals who did intermittent fasting lost weight at the end of the study trial period, those who had calorie reduction also lost weight. And the weight loss between the two of them was no different, no statistical difference between the two groups. Okay. So um, what does that mean? That means that intermittent fasting isn't necessarily better, you know, per that study. Um, and so 
if an individual finds that with intermittent fasting, that's an easy way to introduce calorie reduction, great, try it out, see if it works. And if you like it and it works, congratulations, continue doing it. If however, you um, are like, that sounds miserable, that sounds horrible. I would be really hangry in the morning if I had to do that. No, thank you. Don't do it. Right. And so, so it's, it is a tool. Like when you heard me earlier say, when we're talking about like metabolic health and, and trying specifically, we're talking about um, strategies to help with reducing calorie intake. Cause again, that is part of the equation. It's not the whole equation. Um, it's a tool that you can use. Okay. And it might offer for some individuals, if they know like, Hey, I'm not within my feeding window. Um, now I don't even think about food and that's actually alleviating for me. I've heard some people say, great, but I have other people that are like, if you get too obsessive about it, or if it's like, you have to do this, you have to do this. It's, it's superior. I think we're also, um, spreading a false narrative in that sense too. So I use it, you know, I have a lot of people ask me, they've never tried it. And, and they wonder if that's something that might work for them. I say, great, I'll, I'll monitor you, try it out. Let's talk about it in a couple of weeks. And if you feel like this is really serving you, great. And if you find out that you really hate it and you're, it leads to um, this aggressive eating during the time that you want to eat, then this is not a good approach for you. Yeah. Awesome. I, I feel like I could, I could just sit here and ask you questions all day long and listen to you, listen to your responses. Cause they're just so concise and amazing. So I'm sure anyone listening to this is just going to be absorbing every word. Um, and I thank you for these answers. Cause I, I feel a sense of calm and relief, or, you know, and, and a lot of this is, is, are already things that I'm speaking, that I speak about all the time. So I'm sure other people are going to feel that too. Um, and where can people connect with you after this episode? Thanks Emily for having me. And it's always wonderful connecting with old friends. And, um, and I think the service that you're providing your, um, clients is amazing. And, um, I, 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 you're just, you're a wonderful person and someone also who really understands the science really well and is able to translate it and personalize it for each person. Um, I would love to connect with whomever um, and you can find me um, on social media. So on Instagram, I'm at Dr. Sandra I. Sobel. I have a website. My website is www.summonhealth, all one word, .com. And um, I just thank you again for this opportunity. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, and we'll do it again some other time. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.